You know, but God is going to do what God's going to do. And he has the perfect right and authority to do whatever he wants. But I do know this, that even in the midst of it all, his promise is unfailing. Right? He's still God. He hasn't moved just because he didn't do something that I wanted him to do or thought that he would do or thought something that was something that was just a, duh, you know, do this. But it's okay. God is still God. And he's still perfect. And he's still sovereign. And he's still on the throne. Right? Some of you believe that. <laughs> Lord, we come before you. And we ask that you do a work in our lives that only you can do. And I ask God that you would just show yourself strong as you always do. Lord, we are your children. We are your family. And Lord, I know that you only do what's best for us because you love us and you care for us immensely. And we thank you for that. We thank you that you are a sovereign God who makes no mistakes. And that your promises are unfailing. Your word is unshaken. And we trust you, Lord. We trust you, Father, to do what's best. And Lord, when it comes to our own salvation, we're so thankful for that. That you make no mistakes in that either. That you love us, that you care for us. And you only allow those things that are best for us. Those things that make us more like your son, Jesus. So Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts this day. And draw us closer to you. And do a work in our lives, Lord, that only you can. And we'll praise you for it. For it's in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. A little bit different message this morning. What is biblical conversion? Biblical conversion, or as many people might rightly say, salvation. What is salvation? What is biblical conversion? We know that it's truly a gift from God, because it says in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, it says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What a great and awesome gift salvation is, right? You and I couldn't earn it. We couldn't be good enough. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Not by works of righteousness which I have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. Titus 3, 5. And we know that <clears throat> except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. So God has offered us this incredible gift in salvation. There's nothing we could do to earn it. There's nothing we could do to work for it. And yet, except a man receive this gift, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. There are many people who will live this life. And when they die, even though they think they might have had a relationship with Jesus Christ, they will spend eternity in hell. So what do I mean by that? There are a lot of people who don't have a correct biblical view of what it means to be saved. There are a lot of people who don't know what it means to biblically be truly converted. 
See, my opinion doesn't really matter. My opinion is nothing before God Almighty and before mankind around me. My opinion does not matter. It really doesn't. I have opinions about this, that, and the other thing, but when it comes to salvation, what I think I know is doesn't matter. It only matters what God's Word says. And the, and the importance of God's Word means everything, because I either believe it or I don't. And at some point, if I say, well, certain parts of it aren't true, well then what, what's to say that none of it's true, or any of it's true? And if I have the right to choose certain parts to be true and other parts not to be true, well, who gives us the right to decide which parts are good and what parts aren't? Either I accept it by faith or I don't. And I've come to the conclusion that this Word has never failed me. That God's Word is always true. For hundreds and thousands of years, people have been trying to destroy the Word of God, and guess what? They have not been successful. Because God says in His own Word, Thy Word, for O Lord, is forever settled in heaven. God's Word is not going away, and it's the only thing that doesn't go away. The souls of men and the Word of God, it's the only one consistent thing that we have in this life. And I either anchor what I believe on this book, or I don't. But at whatever point I decide that certain parts aren't true, then what makes any of it true if it's just my opinion? I believe that it's true. And I hope you do as well. Because everything that we believe as a child of God is anchored in this book. And it's either true or it's not. But I believe it is. So, biblical conversion, or what we call salvation, is a gift from God. But a lot of people have a lot of ideas of what that means. Let me give you a couple of ideas. For some, it means I'm going to heaven. I say, woo! Going to heaven now. Great, wonderful. I don't have to go to hell anymore. I get to escape the lake of fire. But if all Jesus is to you is a get out of hell free card, you don't understand what conversion is. Because it's not just about praying a prayer and all of a sudden I'm going to heaven and boom, done. It's over. I can keep living my life however I want. Nothing needs to change. And the bottom line is you're not going to heaven on that premise. For some, it means I found religion. I got baptized. Whoop-dee-doo. There are a million denominations out there. There are a million religions out there. Find one that you appreciate, because there's one for everyone that, every little thing that you believe or don't believe. Because religion is not going to save you. But some people think that because they found religion, or because maybe they got baptized, that maybe they all of a sudden they're converted and going to heaven and they're saved now. No, they're not. And that's not my opinion. That's from God's Word. And I'll go more on that in just a little bit. For some people, it means I'm turning over a new leaf. I've quit drinking. I'm going to quit smoking. I'm going to start helping people more. I'm going to start helping with these projects and giving to the, you know, to the church and, and whatever else. I'm going to help the poor or whatever else. And for them, it's just turning over a new leaf. That's not conversion. And for some people, it's just, well, I'm going to church now. Okay. Wonderful. Church is not going to save you. This church will not save you. Any church that you've ever been associated with in your life is not going to save you. Church will never and has never ever saved anyone. For some it means it's Jesus or religion plus whatever else i got going on. I mean, you know, I don't want to get too spiritual, too religious. People are going to think I've you know, gone nuts and crazy and oh, you know, whatever, weird. But for some people it's just got Jesus plus whatever else is the norm. 
But you know, I don't need all that religion and stuff. So what I'd like to address today is what is biblical conversion? What is biblical salvation? And what are the characteristics of a genuine conversion based on God's Word? Not what so-and-so said on TV. Not what so-and-so said on the radio. Not what that one preacher that I knew somebody went to his church says. What does God's Word say? You say, you might be wondering this morning, well, I'm in church. Why are, you, why are we talking about this? We're in church. Let me give you two reasons. I want to address this reason, this topic today. Number one, my heart's desire for every one of you in this room this morning is that you truly know Jesus Christ and have a relationship with Him. I really do desire that. I hope that you really do truly know Jesus Christ and what it means to be converted. My heart would break if you came to this church week after week after week or periodically month after month or for many years and you did not have a solid understanding from God's Word what it means to know Jesus Christ. I would not be doing my job. And you should fire me. I mean that. If I did not tell you the truth, you should fire me and get rid of me and hire someone who is. Secondly, there are many false beliefs and thoughts often conveyed by well-meaning people, even pastors and teachers, that are not necessarily true concerning salvation. So let me just further explain what I started to say this morning. Biblical conversion is not just the ticket you get in order to go to heaven. It's not. It's not an escape hell or get out of hell free card, as some people like to look at it. It's not just an idea of say this prayer and you don't have to go to hell anymore. If that's the reason you prayed, that's probably not a real good solid reason to pray. Biblical conversion is not finding religion. Religion will never save anyone. Almost every religion under the sun has a founder. Somebody that has started that religion. And can I just say this? No founder of any denomination of any other religion under the sun, no one has ever died for the sins of man and has risen again that we might have life for eternal eternity. No man, any founder of any denomination of religion has ever done that. But Jesus Christ did. That's what sets him apart from every other religion and denomination and faith or belief system. Christianity is different. Christianity is based on the life of Jesus Christ and Him alone. So even well-meaning people and pastors will... You say, well, can a pastor preach for 50 years or can someone go to a church for 50 years and not get it? Yes. Yes. Unfortunately, yes. My next-door neighbor in Indiana said, we went to this church for 51 years and I've never heard anyone talk about what it means to be saved. I've never heard that concept before. For 51 years they went to church every week and never heard the Gospel. It goes on everywhere around the world every Sunday. People can have a good story and make you feel good and, and talk about the, uh, the Good Samaritan and a parable about this and a teaching about that and make you feel good about being in church. But if you don't accept the Gospel, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, it doesn't mean anything. Just more facts, more information to tuck away in the brain. Biblical conversion is not turning over a new leaf. 
Turning over a new leaf often implies that one is doing it, or, or, or the one doing it is trying out some new things or doing some things differently. There's more to biblical conversion than trying some new things or doing some different things. I'm going to start doing this, going to stop doing that, going to you know, kind of better myself a little bit. That's not Christianity. Trust me. There are a lot of people who claim the name of Christ who are hypocrites, who are living one way on Sunday, living a different way Monday through Saturday. That's not Christianity. We ought to be the same seven days a week. You can't say praise Jesus on Sunday and then start cussing like a sailor on Monday. Either you have a relationship with Jesus Christ or you don't. Biblical conversion is not finding a church to regularly attend. Trust me, there's one for everyone. If you want a church that believes this but doesn't believe that, there's a church for that. Fill in the blank. There is one. promise you there is. If you believe it's okay to go out and get wasted every Saturday night and then come into worship Sunday, there's churches that say that's fine. This is God's day. You want to go get high on Friday night and come to church on Sunday? There's churches that say, hey, don't worry about it. You know, we're all, none of us are perfect. It's okay. You can't live like the world and say, I'm a Christian. They're incompatible. Jesus Christ is different. He was different, is different, makes us different. And unfortunately, to a lot of those churches, the Bible doesn't matter. Biblical conversion is not easy believism. Data and facts alone has never saved anybody. More data about the Bible, more information about the Bible, never has saved anyone. Mere information does not save. Just because you might know something about something doesn't make you a Christian. Last week I was at a restaurant. And uh, I wanted to... The older I get, the more my filter kind of gets a little bit less. It's clogged. Some of you understand what what I'm talking about. The older we get, our filter gets a little bit, you know, not working correctly. But it was working that day because I had a little bit of restraint. I was sitting there, but the guy across from us over here was talking about Christianity and what his definition of it was. And I just wanted to stand up and scream, dude, you are so wrong. You don't have an idea. You don't have a clue. You met somebody who said something and therefore has skewed your view of what it means to be a Christian. But there are like seven guys sitting in a circle, all crushing it, and, and I wanted to stand up and it just wasn't the circumstance. And I really wanted to. And then I felt bad because I did later. But I, thought, I don't know what I would have done, but it wasn't the scenario that was best. People have all kinds of views. All kinds of opinions. All kinds of thoughts. And I found over the years that most everybody that has those opinions, thoughts, and they think they're right. They think they're right. And let me go so far as to say many of them are really, really sincere I mean, they mean well, right? I mean, they're, they're good people. They mean well. And yet, they're wrong. Because they're not anchored in this book. You cannot like something it says, and you have that freedom. You have that right to say, I don't like that. Awesome. I'm not going to beat you up over it. I'll let the Holy Spirit do that. But the bottom line is, you've got to anchor your life on something. 
And if it's not on God's unchanging Word, what then? Feelings? Experiences? Opinions? Every one of those things will lead you down the wrong path. God's Word says there is a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Man's opinions, man's experience, man's thoughts will only lead to a life separated from Jesus Christ. Matthew says in chapter 7, Have I not cast out demons in your name? Haven't we done miracles in your name? And he says, depart from me, for I never knew you. There are a lot of religious people who do a lot of crazy things in the name of Jesus. Send in your seed and get your holy water. And if you anoint this holy water, I mean, just touch the screen with your hand. Weird. I'm not giving my money to anybody so that he can buy another car. Sorry. If it's not anchored in the Bible, in God's Word, it will lead you astray. In Luke chapter 6, he says, Why call me Lord? Lord, and do not the things that I say. You say, well, what's the importance of what you're saying, Pastor? We're going to get into that. Christianity is more than words. It's more than words. It's more than opinions. More than thoughts. More than experiences. More than just what I feel. It has to be anchored in God's unchanging Word. So what does the Bible say about conversion? Its characteristics, its effect on us as His children. Conversion is our willing response to the Gospel call in which we sincerely repent of our sins and place our trust in Christ for salvation, according to Gruden. I like his definition. There's two components, two characteristics of biblical conversion. The repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. Repentance involves or is characterized by a turning from sin. Turning from sin. And can I just say this? Salvation always starts with repentance. I cannot put my faith in Christ and say, well, I don't need to repent. I cannot put my faith in trust and say, well, nothing needs to change. It's the repentance that is the precursor to putting our faith in Him. There's an acknowledgement that I can't keep going the same direction. Jesus Christ died for my sins. I can't keep doing this. So repentance involves or is characterized by a turning from sin. And I think there are several thoughts that revolve around the process of turning from sin. Number one, there should be a renouncing or forsaking of sin. Am I willing to renounce this sin and have a view of it that God has a view of it? See, I don't think many of us, I don't think a lot of us, myself included, have a healthy view of sin. I really don't. Because we, we, we don't say that we categorize sin, but we really in our minds categorize sin. I mean, we, have, we all know that the murder is worth telling a little fib lie. There's just, they're just not, not, not as bad. All sin breaks the heart of God. You've heard me say that over and over again. Sin is sin, and all sin breaks the heart of God. And we might categorize it in our own mind and say, well, this is not as bad as this. Yes, it is, because sin is sin. And sin breaks the heart of God. 
Do we view it as God views it? And if we have a relationship with Jesus Christ, are we willing to renounce and forsake this sin and say, this should not be a part of who I am as a child of God? Am I willing to renounce it and forsake it? Because the whole concept of repentance is that I'm going one direction, I'm confronted with the truth that what I'm doing is wrong, and I turn my back on it and I go a different direction. That's repentance. I can't just say, well, I'm sorry because I got caught in it. Or I can't say, well, I'm sorry because, well, you know, you found out that I'm involved with it. The the idea of repentance is not just being sorry. It's saying, I'm sorry, this is wrong, it breaks the heart of God, and I can no longer do it, and i got to turn my back on it and go a different way. Repentance involves a turning from sin and renouncing it and forsaking it. Number two, true repentance will produce a changed life. Who I am in Christ now as a child of God should be different than who I was before I put my faith and trust in Christ. There should be a difference. It's not my life plus Jesus and nothing having to change. It's not my life saying, well, I can do whatever I want because i got Jesus and after all, He's going to forgive me anyway. No, it doesn't work that way. Either I'm living for God or I'm living for the world. There's no middle ground. Either I'm a child or I'm not. Repentance includes a hatred for our sin. Why? I like what he says, what R.C. Sproul says. He says, true repentance involves a godly sorrow for having offended a God, or offended God, and a resolve to be rid of our sin. Why? Because all sin offends God. He's a holy, righteous God. He said to be holy as I am holy. And for us to just say, Forget that or disregard that it says, God, I don't really care what you did on the cross of Calvary for the sin that I'm enjoying. Our sin demands that, number one, because Jesus Christ paid for it, that we reject it. True conversion calls sinners to repentance. For the next little while here, I'm going to be running through some Scriptures, and I don't want you to think, well, pastor's on a rampage, and you know, pastor's just kind of giving us a bunch of opinions. I want you to know that everything I'm saying this morning is based on God's Word. So I'm going to invite you to follow along with me. If you don't have your Bibles, Matt will have it on the screen behind us. But I want to look, and I just promise you, I only took half the verses on repentance throughout the book of Acts. Only half of them. But just for a moment, follow along as I read through some of these verses that really talk about what biblical repentance is all about. Number one, in Acts chapter 2, verses 36-38, through 38, It says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now think about this. He made him the Lord because he is our master, and he made him Christ because he is the Savior of the world. And he says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. You shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, he says to repent and be baptized. Some people mistakenly misconstrue this verse and say, Well, baptism is a part of salvation. No, it's not. Baptism is a first step of obedience following true salvation. Now, what is biblical baptism? You've heard me say this a million times, so just for a moment, bear with me again. Romans chapter 6, if you would. Romans chapter 6. Beginning in verse 1. And really, we could read the entire chapter, but let me just read you six verses that deal with what baptism is. It says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who have died to sin live any longer in it? 
Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ, Jesus were baptized into His death? Therefore we were buried with Him through the baptism into His death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of His death, certainly we also shall be in likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that the old man was crucified with Him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. So, once again, I've had so many people over the years, over the last almost 30 years of ministry, say, well, Pastor, can you baptize my baby? And I say, no. We can dedicate your child, and we should dedicate your child, and let's rejoice in that opportunity to dedicate your child and, and to pray over that child and, and to help you as a, a parent to pray for that child as you rear that child for the Lord. But no, we don't baptize infants. Why? Because it's unbiblical. You won't find out one example in the entire Bible of any baby who was baptized for salvation. It's not in there. It's a man-made doctrine that some, church, some churches have, have taken on, and it's not in the Bible. What is baptism? A baptism is a public profession of one's faith. And you say, well, why don't we sprinkle? Why do we baptize by immersion? There's a biblical reason for that. Once again, it would be a whole lot easier to have somebody come forward and have their head just over, over a bowl and kind of pour some water over it. That would be a whole lot easier than getting down into the water and dunking somebody. But it's not about being easy. The reality is, there is a picture that has taken place in baptism. And here it is. When I stand in the water, I form a what? Cross. It's my public identity with Christ. I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am standing as a picture of my prophetic, or of my profession of faith in Christ. Stand in the water. What did Christ do on the cross? What? He died. So as Christ went under, as we go under the water, we are representing His death. Did Jesus Christ stay in the grave? No, He rose again. So up out of the water, signifying His resurrection. So the whole public profession of faith in Jesus Christ is pictured through baptism. But here's what He says in verse 6. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him and that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Here's what he's saying here. When we go under, who we are before Christ should not be who we are after we are risen with Christ, right? The old man is crucified. So when he says in Acts, repent and be baptized, he's saying, repent of your sins Put to death your old man, be crucified with Christ, and live. It's not the idea that baptism is required for salvation. No. Baptism was a command almost in that sense to put away the old man and to crucify the flesh and to no longer remain in sin. So he says, repent and be baptized. In Acts chapter 3 and verse 19, He says, repent therefore and be converted. See, once again, repentance precedes conversion. There has to be an acknowledgement of my sin before God. And I want to repent of it. I want to have the view of sin that God has of it. Because He died on the cross. He shed His blood for it. So He says, repent and then be converted. We're going to talk about the converted part in just a moment. It means to put your faith in Him. It means to turn to Jesus. So there's to repent and be converted. And then He says in Acts chapter 8 and verse 22. Repent therefore of this your wickedness and pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. You know, here's the beautiful thing. When we repent of our sins, 
That is a beautiful thing. Because he says in the Psalms, so far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sins from us. Isn't that awesome? That God says when you confess your sins, he says he takes it away. He forgives. 1 John 1 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have the beautiful opportunity to experience forgiveness from our sins through repentance. And he says, repent of your wickedness. Acts chapter 17 and verse 30. He commands all men in verse 30. Look at this. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Because He has appointed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom He has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising Him from the dead. Who is He talking about? Jesus. Until Jesus comes, we have opportunity to repent. I hope that you're understanding this. That repentance precedes conversion. Conversion requires repentance. And He's calling all men to repentance. That's you. That's me. That's everyone who walks this earth. He's calling us to repentance. In Acts chapter 20, gives even more clarification. Acts chapter 20, verses 20 and 21. He says, actually let me go back to verse 18. It says, And when they had come to Him, He said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you, Serving the Lord without humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. How I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance towards God and faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. See how repentance and faith go hand in hand. They work together. It'd be useless for me to repent of my sins, but never put my faith and trust in Christ. It'd be Unthinkable to think, well, I have faith in Christ, but never have to repent. They work hand in hand. Repentance and faith in Jesus. And then in Acts chapter 26, one more passage here in the book of Acts. And and once again, I only chose a handful of the verses that deal with repentance in this book. There are so many more. Acts chapter 26, verse 19 and 20 says, Therefore, King Agrippa... I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. In James chapter 2, verses 14 and 17, he talks about faith without works being dead. See, he doesn't just say, hey, you should deal with these issues of sin. But at the same time, he says, as you deal with these issues of sin... You need to draw close to Jesus Christ, put your faith in Him, and then begin to serve Him with your life. Work for Him. That's why he says, do works fitting repentance. Because the things that you used to do are no longer your, part of your life. Can I just say this? Hear me when I say this. Any conversion that does not require one to repent of their sin, turn away from it with disdain, Demand that it be forsaken and does not result in a changed life is not a biblical conversion. Let me say it again. 
any conversion that does not require one to repent of their sin, turn away from it with disdain, demand that it be forsaken and does not result in a changed life is not a biblical conversion. It's not true salvation. Because salvation requires repentance. You see, I can't just say, well, God, I trust you. I believe in you. And continue to go on in life as normal, living in sin. It doesn't work that way. You understand that when Jesus Christ went to the cross, in order to offer you salvation, He shed His blood. He died on the cross. That's a morbid thought to think of Jesus dying, or anyone dying for someone else. He went to the cross. He died, folks. He shed His blood. Blood came from His body. God's Word says His visage was unrecognizable as a man. He was beaten for you and I. He shed His blood so that you and I might have forgiveness of sin. Nobody wants to think about that. I don't like to think about that. But I think sin causes us to think about that. It's our very sin for which Jesus Christ did that. See, there's not a one, a one of us in this entire room that is good enough or could work our way to heaven. Not one of us. Not me. Certainly not me. Ask my family. Ask my kids. They'll tell you my flaws. Those of you who know me long enough, you know them too. I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. There's nothing I can do to save myself but to repent of my sins, turn away from them, and turn to Jesus and Him alone. One who truly repents can no longer freely and willingly continue in sin. He can no longer make light of the very sin that Jesus Christ gave His blood for. He can't. So there, first of all, there's biblical conversion starts with Repentance. And then number two, it involves faith. Faith involves or is characterized by a turning to Jesus Christ and to Him alone. It also involves one understanding of His need for forgiveness and His need to trust in Jesus Christ alone. In Jesus Christ alone. Let me give you several verses that deal with this. Um, First of all, if you're familiar with the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John... John has several verses I want to highlight just for a moment. John chapter 3 and verse 36 says, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. I watched a video that was floating around Facebook a couple weeks ago, but a young man sitting in a driver's seat with his hands there, and whoever was in the passenger seat looked at him and says, Why would a good God send people to hell? And he just very matter-of-factly says, God didn't send anyone to hell. You see, he says, like you're on a ship that's going down. And as the ship is taking on water and it begins to sink, a lifeboat comes right alongside the ship. And he says, hey, come over here. I can save you if you'll get in the lifeboat. And at that point, the person who's going down with the ship says, I have a choice to make. I can either go down with the ship or I can jump on the lifeboat. He said, either way, the ship's going down. If you choose to jump into the lifeboat, your life will be spared. But if you don't, you're still going down. He says, in Jesus Christ, apart from Jesus Christ, we are all going to hell. Every last one of us, without exception. 
And Jesus Christ says, I am offering you myself as a lifeboat. You can get in or you cannot, but either way you're going, but you have an opportunity to be saved. He says, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. There are a lot of people who think they're going to go to heaven one day when they die. I can't tell you how many times growing up in my life where I've been to a funeral and somebody is standing in, or laying here in a casket and the preacher says, well, bless God, they're going to heaven now. There's no more pain, no more suffering. The cancer is gone. They're in heaven. And I'm thinking to myself, this person never walked with God, never entered the door of a church, never had a relationship with Jesus Christ, never professed Him in any way, shape, or form, but He's somehow in heaven? Trust you me, I've been asked to do funerals over the years with people I did not know, and I've made it crystal clear one thing. I will not preach your unsaved loved one into heaven. I cannot do that. I have no authority under God's word in heaven above or earth below to to save anyone. I cannot do that. Neither can you, by the way. And just because they're gone doesn't mean they're going to heaven. Except the man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. God's Word is clear. It is so clear. You say, well, isn't that being exclusive? If that's what you want to call God's method, yes. There is a narrow path and a wide path. People don't want to go on the narrow path, God's Word says. I'm not going to get very far if I keep going. John chapter 10. In verse 9, it says, I am the door. If anyone enters in by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Let me give you an idea just for a moment of what a biblical pasture looks like. Maybe you've seen one before, maybe you haven't. But in biblical days, we all heard the stories about the shepherds in the fields keeping watch over the flock. But the reality is this. The sheepfold was just that. It was a pasture with a stone wall that went around it. It might look something like a a small field. It might be several acres. It might be a mile. But there was a stone wall that went all the way around the pasture that the sheep were in. There was one opening in the wall. And it was about the width of a person. That's it. One little spot where there's an opening. The stone wall would go this way, and the stone wall would go that way, but one little opening. Here's why. It says, I am the door. I am the door, he says. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. You say, is that exclusive? Yes. Jesus Christ is the door. That's exclusive. Jesus Christ is the only door. And so the shepherd would sleep in that doorway. As long as he was sitting in that doorway, no sheep could get out, no other, nothing else could come in. He's the door. And he says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And in John chapter 14, verse 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He says, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. 
And no one comes to the Father except through me. Isn't that amazing? In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, he says, There is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. It is only in the name of Jesus. Is that exclusive? Yes, it is. It's not in any other person who formed a denomination or a religion or has a Christian, or I mean, some, some type of a specific belief system. No, it's, it's not. It's in Jesus. And in Jesus alone. In Acts chapter 16, verse 30 and 31, he says, And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. He didn't say, Believe on the latest self help book that's out there on the market. He didn't believe it. He said, Believe on this guy who's down here, you know, talking about religious stuff down here in the corner of the streets. He said, Believe on the Lord Jesus, and thou shalt be saved. Over and over, he makes it clear it's only in Jesus. In 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, he says this. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. But I love how he concludes this thought with verse 13. Because there are a lot of people who hope they have salvation. There are a lot of people who think they have salvation. There are maybe even people that want salvation, but they're not sure. Verse 13 says, These things, what, did, what are these things? Go back a couple verses. And this is the testimony that God has given us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. These things have I written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. He didn't say wish. He didn't say hope. He didn't say think. He said no. You can have 100% certainty that today that you're a child of God and on your way to heaven when you die. See, that's what it means to be a Christian. To follow Christ. You can't be a Christian and follow Muhammad Gandhi or Mother Teresa or some president of the past, or some guru. See, Christian is one who follows Christ. These things have I written unto you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. And can I just tell you this? As I said earlier, faith and repentance go hand in hand. Faith and repentance go hand in hand. In Mark chapter 1, In verse 15, he says this. <clears throat> and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. See, faith is turning to Jesus. Repentance is turning away from sin, but faith is turning to Jesus. And that's what he says here. Repent, turn away from your sin, and believe. Turn to Jesus. It would be no value to say, well, I'm going to quit sinning, but not turn to Jesus. It would be no value to say, well, I have faith in Jesus, but I'm going to continue in my sin. They work hand in hand. Faith and repentance go hand in hand. 
2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 says, For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. So, I'm almost through. What are some of the effects of biblical conversion? Well, one who truly repents and puts their faith in Jesus Christ now belongs to Jesus because he has been redeemed. You say, well, I've never heard that term before, redeemed. Well, let me give you an everyday example of this. Up here in the plaza, (coughs) there is a redemption center. And as you turn in those bottles, you are receiving a little something, emphasis on little, for turning it in. It's purchased back from you. You see, redemption was a term that was used in the marketplace referring to the selling of slaves, ironically enough. In the marketplace, the slaves would be taken and there be redeemed or bought, purchased. Interesting thing. To redeem means to be purchased in the marketplace. And once Jesus redeems you and I, were purchased by Him. Owned by Him. We are no longer owned of ourselves. We don't get to control ourselves any longer. You say, well, that's just crazy. If you don't believe the Bible, yes, it is. But as a child of God, He purchased us. You say, well, how do I know that? Well, I'm glad you asked. First Corinthians chapter 6. Once again, we base everything we believe off God's Word. What does God's Word tell us concerning this? 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost who is in you, whom you have for God, and you are not your own? We live in a world that just spits in the face of that concept. I can do whatever I want. You can't tell me what to do. You're not my boss. You have no authority over me. We live in a world that says... I can do whatever I want, as often as I want, however I want, and you cannot control me. You can't tell me what to do. For the child of God, it's just the opposite. Lord, what would you have me to do today? God, how would you have me to respond to this circumstance? God, I'm thinking about doing this, but Lord, I want to walk according to your will, so Lord, if you need me to send me over here, I'm open to that. It's not my life anymore. It's his. He goes on to say, verse 20, says, For you were bought at a price. What was the price? The cross of Calvary. That's a pretty expensive price. He says, Therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. Can I just tell you this? If you don't know Jesus Christ... In Luke chapter 15, verse 7, it says, The angels rejoice over one soul that repents. There is rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents and turns to Jesus. And in Luke chapter 24, verses 46 and 47, it just says simply, Repent and live. Repent and live. I want to close by these four things. R.C. Sproul says that there are at least four fruits of conversion. Really, there are four blessings of conversion. But four fruits of conversion. Number one, 
a verse I already shared earlier, but I just highlighted it again in Acts chapter 3 and verse 19. He says, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. I think the first blessing, the first fruit of conversion, with repentance comes times of refreshing. My sins can be forgiven. There is no sin that is so great, that is so powerful, that is so strong that God cannot forgive it. There's no sin. There's nothing that you could have done, nothing that you did do that is unforgivable. Take it from David in Psalm 51. It's just creating me a clean heart, O oh God. What is he saying? He goes, when he was living in sin before he repented of it, he says as if his bones had waxed old, he felt the pressure and the burden of his sin. But once it was repented of, there was times of refreshing. I love that. Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Number two, in Romans chapter 8, in verse 15 it says, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Number two, fruit of conversion is that we are adopted into the family of God. Isn't that awesome? We're part of God's family through adoption. And you know what's beautiful about adoption? Nobody forces someone to adopt somebody. They do it willingly and lovingly because they want you part of the family. God allows us to be part of His family through conversion. Number three, back just a couple chapters in Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Number three, fruit or blessing of conversion is that we have peace. Oh, we have peace. There is a world that wants to hold you in, under the guilt of things that you've done in your past. But I'm just telling you, we have peace. Why? Because when we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And God's Word tells us in the book of Psalms that as far as the east is from the west, so far that He removed our sins from us, you're not going to hold my past in my presence. Present state. You can't. I have peace because God has forgiven me. And number four, I like what R.C. Sproul says. In verse two it says, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We have access to God, His grace, His mercy, His presence. We have access to God. Some of you, you look forward to seeing family. I look forward to seeing family. I look forward to seeing people I haven't seen in a while. But there's no amount of distance that can hinder your access to God. It says we have 
access by faith into the grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Four fruits of conversion, repentance, (coughs) adoption into his family, peace, and access. Those are some awesome blessings. If I could close by simply summarizing it this way. True conversion requires repentance. I can't continue in my sin and just say, well, flippantly, I'm a child of God. I'm a Christian. It doesn't work that way. True conversion requires repentance. It requires us to turn away from the very sin that Jesus Christ died on the cross for. You can't continue in sin. Jesus Christ gave his life for that. We should view it as God views it. Demand that we have a dis, uh, uh, right? we should have a disdain for it, and we should forsake it. Remember, because the old man is crucified, we've been risen with Christ. We're a new creation in Him. Old things pass away; all things are become new. <coughs> and if those things aren't the reality, you may not have biblical conversion. So what's the answer? Repent and turn to Jesus. Turn away from your sin and turn to Jesus Christ and Him alone. And that kind of repentance, that kind of faith changes everything. God's Word says, except a man be born again, that's what it means. To repent of my sin and to turn to Jesus. It says, except a man do that, He cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone on this earth is going to heaven. Not all roads will lead there. It's just not in there. Folks, you didn't hear my opinion this morning. You heard God's word. You heard the very words of Jesus through his book. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you don't have a relationship with him, that's where it starts. And if you've been attending church for years but have never repented, that's where it starts. If you're a good person, and many of you are by many man's standards are a good person, but you've not repented of your sins and turned to Jesus, you're not saved. It starts with a relationship with Him. And only through a relationship with Jesus Christ can you spend eternity with Him for all in heaven one day. A lot of people think they have something they don't have. Their life is not characteristic of someone who knows Jesus. They've not forsaken the sin. They don't look at sin as God views it. Really, it's just Jesus plus. Whatever else I got going on. None of that religious stuff. I don't want to be too religious. One day all this stuff's not going to matter. But what will matter is God's word says that one day we will die and we'll stand before him. One last thing and I close. Someone once made a statement, and I don't know if I'll say it correctly or not, but the statement was something like this. If you live your whole life believing that there's a Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross for your sins, and because of it, it changed the way you live, you're generally a good person, 
You tried to help those around you. You tried to be a picture of Jesus Christ. And you die and you find out there's no Jesus. You've not lost anything. You're still a good person by man's standard. But if you live your entire life believing that, well, there might be a Jesus, there might not be a Jesus, it's you know, good for you, I don't really need that. Live how I want. And I get to the end of my life and find out that there is a Jesus and I chose not to put my life in his hands, what do you lose? Everything. Including a lake of fire for all eternity. That's your destiny. Am I trying to scare you? No, I just want you to realize the facts. Because he says there will be a lot of people who said, did I not do this in your name? And he said, depart from me, I never knew you. But I went to church, I never knew you. But I gave to the poor, I never knew you. I was a good person, I never knew you. It comes down to a relationship with Jesus Christ. Do you know him? Have you repented, turned from your sins, and put your faith, turned to Jesus alone for salvation? I hope that you have. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the opportunity to be here today, to look at your word, to see what your word says, not what Pastor Ken thinks, believes, not what his opinions are. But Lord, what does your word say? Because that's the only thing that matters when it's all said and done. And Lord, I do pray that if there be one here today, Lord, that does not know you as their Savior, might today be the day of salvation for them. I ask God that you would draw your draw people to yourself. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I just ask for a moment that no one be looking around. Just every week when I preach, I give everyone in the auditorium, and myself included, an opportunity to respond to the things that have been said. I speak to myself as well. But I just ask for a moment that just think about what's been said from God's Word. It wasn't Ken's thoughts, it was God's Word. It was those verses. But if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, you have no hope of heaven. You say, well, how can I know him? Acknowledging that I am a sinner. We are all sinners. I acknowledge that I'm a sinner. But it doesn't stop there. I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross. He shed his blood that I might have forgiveness of sin. Do you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross? <coughs> and let her see. Are you willing to confess your sins before him? That repentance term. Am I willing to turn from my sin? Romans 10.9 says, For with the heart one believes, but with the mouth confession is made. So there is a turning away from sin. I acknowledge that. And I call on him, verse 13, to be my Savior. You say, well, I don't know really how to do that. It's a simple prayer. A simple prayer. My prayer cannot save you. <laughs> it's your faith, your trust that will save you if you claim God's word. It's a prayer that simply goes something like this. Lord, I admit that I'm a sinner. Tell Jesus, I'm a sinner. I believe that. I'm a sinner, Lord. And I ask you to forgive me of my sin. 
I believe that you died on the cross. Tell Jesus. If you believe that, tell Jesus you believe that. I believe you died on the cross for my sin. And I confess to you and ask for your forgiveness. And I call on you to be my Savior. I put my trust and faith in you, in you alone. Just tell him that. Are you willing to trust him? Are you willing to let him be your Savior? Acknowledge that. Just simply say, Lord, I want you to be my Savior. I put my trust in you and you alone. With heads bowed and eyes are closed, just a simple, once again, a question. Say, Pastor Ken, this morning, I, 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 I realize I'm not a I'm not a Christian, but I prayed that prayer this morning. Can I just simply pray for you? I'll not embarrass you, not call you out, but with uplifted hand, you say, Pastor, I prayed that prayer. Anyone like that this morning? Anyone? Anyone? Yeah. It's the greatest decision you could ever make is to simply say, Lord, I want to follow you. I turn from my sinfulness and turn and put my faith in you. So for the rest of us, we have the greatest treasure that has ever been given to us. What are we doing with it? Are we sharing that treasure? Are we living as though we are a child of God? Say, Pastor Ken, there's some things that need to change in my life. There needs to be some forsaking of sin. There needs to be repentance taking place. Say, Pastor Ken, pray for me. The Holy Spirit's convicted me. There's some things that need to change. Anyone like that? Say, Pastor, pray for me. Yes. Yes. Yes, yes. Many. My hand's up, folks. I, I want to do the best I can to live a life that is a picture of Jesus. I fail at times. But that's my desire. Lord God, as we come before you, let's all stand to our feet. Lord, as we come before you this morning, Lord, there are many of us, Lord, that we acknowledge, Lord, we're not everything that we should be. And God, by God's grace, we're not what we used to be. But we're asking you to do a work in our lives, Lord, as only you can. Lord, I do pray there be one here today, Lord, that does not have that assurance of salvation. Might today be the day of salvation for them. And I ask, God, that you do a work in our lives. Help us be a picture of Jesus in this world that we live in. We live outwardly of what we say is inside. May we view a picture of Jesus, Lord. Be with each one who raised their hand, their heart toward you this morning, Lord, that we would truly be identified with Christ. Lord, work in our hearts. Draw us closer to you, we pray in Jesus' name.